I'm excited to be here this morning. I can genuinely and honestly say that. I'm excited to be here this morning. Yeah. Yeah, versus all the other Sundays, right? Yeah. No, no. I'm excited every Sunday, but no, I'm thrilled to be here. I think I kind of joked a couple weeks ago before we left, like we really weren't going to miss you all that much. My wife and I were spending about 10 days in Italy celebrating our 15-year anniversary, um, but we were ready to come home. Yeah, Friday hit, and it was like, okay, Rome is nice and all, but ready to see my kids, ready to see my church family, and so it really is good to be here with you guys. Um, also, I, I proved something on this trip. It is actually possible to walk 60 miles in a little over a week and still gain weight. I was able to accomplish that. And so I fully embraced all that Italy had to offer. And, um, and so now I immediately need to go on a diet and combine diet and exercise. I think there's a reason why those two go together because um, I did not do the diet part on this trip. No, we had a great time. We loved it. Um, really, um, it was very refreshing and nice kind of just being with my wife and getting a break. But it also is a really good reminder that we just love our lives. We love being here. Um, we're thrilled to be doing what we're doing. And so um, it's really good to be back and be home with you guys. Um, so Italy is going to run through this sermon a little bit. Um, we're going to talk about Paul's letter, his closing letter to Timothy. This is 2 Timothy is going to kind of be the basis of this. If you want to follow along in your own Bible, you can go ahead and turn there and just kind of hold a spot. We'll look at a few different portions of Scripture in 2 Timothy. Um, but one of the things that we got to do while visiting was to see the prison where Paul was as he was awaiting like his last days. He was awaiting his execution. And so he was in a small little prison cell. Now, to get there, um, my friend Wes and I kind of split off from my wife Amy and his wife Darcy and went on a little hunt. We had been at the Roman Colosseum, and we knew it was right, right down the street from there, like a block away. And we were told it was inside the Roman Forum. And so there's just kind of all these, like, ancient remains of, like, columns and cool old buildings. And we had bought a ticket to get in the Colosseum and kind of see that. And so we had access into that other area. And so him and I kind of go on this trek. We think it's like a five-minute walk to get there. And an hour later, we finally ended up two blocks away where we were supposed to be. Um, and I won't bore you with all the side trails and dead ends that we got to. Um, but we really had to work to find this tiny little spot. And so when we finally found it, um, what was there was um, this little chapel that's been built on the top of what was a prison cell. And so I think we've got a picture of that. Jacob, you ready to pop that up there? So here I am. I, I realized later I didn't look too happy in these pictures because I was frustrated and exhausted by the time we finally found um, Paul's prison. But this is kind of the outside of the Mamertine prison um, where Paul was held. And so this structure is kind of the, the little chapel that's been built on top of that. Um, the legend also says that, that Peter was held there. Um, that hasn't been as verified, but they're pretty certain Paul was there. Um, and so then um, we went inside and we went inside. The first thing we saw was this model of the structure. So I wanted you guys to see this. Um, go ahead with that next picture, Jacob. I don't know if y'all can see that very well from there, but sort of a breakdown of the building we were in. And so there's the, the, the steeple there. And then at ground level, we walked into kind of this room. That's the first one down from the roof. And it's just this little chapel, maybe like fewer seats than we have in here, just tiny little spot. And so we walked in there, and then we went down a staircase. And now, um, Jacob, if you would go ahead, and there's a zoom in that's maybe a little tighter. You can see that a little bit better there. We went down a staircase into this room. 
And that room right there was sort of the area where like the guards would go. And the only access into the actual cell where Paul was, was a hole in the ground that had a grate that went over it. And so the prisoners would actually be lowered or more likely thrown down into that hole, into this tiny dank cell. And then you would move into this lower level. Now, if you look at this, when I'm telling you that's a small chapel up there, I mean, you can imagine how cramped the ceiling is here in that cell. And so is the next thing the, the little video we did? So this is just a, like a 10-second video that just kind of does a little pan through this. Paul was in this actual cell. Little hole in the ground to use the restroom, I guess. That's it. Behind us was just a flat wall. This tiny, little, dank, dark, below-ground-level cell, Paul was thrown in there and left to await his execution. That's where he was. This took place in about the mid-60s A.D. So we're coming up pretty close on like 2,000 years later from that. And Paul was in this prison cell. And Paul was in prison, you know, many times throughout his journey of following Jesus and preaching the gospel. He emphasized like, man, I've been in chains. I've been beaten. I've been shipwrecked. Like he lists all the stuff he's gone through. But now he's in the last cell he will be in. This particular cell was known as the place that you were sent because death was imminent. You were there in holding to be executed. This prison that that Paul was in, this was believed to be the first um, Roman maximum security prison that they ever had. Um, The specific cell that Paul was in actually had another name. The Mamertine prison was kind of the whole prison. That cell was known, and I'm going to butcher this, but it was known as Tullianum. Tullianum um, was kind of just that particular room. And so there was Paul, and as he's waiting out his final days, he knows it. He knows it. We'll even see this as we begin to read in 2 Timothy. He knew what was coming. And in his final days inside of this cell, what he decides to do with his last days is to write his spiritual son, Timothy, a letter. And so as we approach this this morning, I just want to encourage you to kind of have the mindset of not only physically where Paul is, but where he is in his own heart and mind. He knows what awaits him. This is a guy that has walked a long, hard road, traveling all over the place, going through a variety of trials, and now he's no, he knows he's reaching the end of his life. And, you know, for many of us, um, we have no idea what the rest of this day, much less tomorrow, holds. Many people will have no idea their moment of of death, their moment of moving on to heaven. We don't know that. Paul had a very um, specific sense of what was coming. And so imagine, put yourself in that place of knowing your last days are upon you. You know they're coming and you've got some things you want to say. You have some people that you want to talk to. That's what this letter is about. This is Paul pouring out his heart to his close friend who he's walked through life with, he's poured his heart into, and that's what this letter is. And so we're gonna look at this from kind of three angles. Now, there's all kinds of just deep, rich stuff in 2 Timothy. I'd encourage you guys, do a little digging on your own, read through it, unpack it, great stuff. But we're gonna look at this from three angles. And so as as Paul is writing this to Timothy, the first thing he's emphasizing is this idea of Timothy running his own race, 
of Timothy embracing his walk, his purpose, his journey on this earth. Timothy, understand and embrace your road. And so this begins even as he's opening his letter. So let's start here in 2 Timothy chapter 1. We're going to begin reading in verse 3. And so here's Paul in this dark cell, and he begins to write, and he says, I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors. See, think about this. He's reflecting. He's thinking back on all that have come before him. I think about my ancestors and with a clear conscience as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. I don't even know how much he was aware of when was night and when was day. I mean, there was no way to tell in this cell. The cell above it didn't have access to sunlight. So he's like, I don't even know. I'm just praying for you constantly. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. One of my big prayers in my life, um, especially the longer I walk with the Lord, is that his word would continue to stay fresh and real and alive in my heart. I don't want to become so familiar with the scripture that it just becomes this ritual, this routine, this thing I'm supposed to read and becomes dry. Like Paul's not writing a fancy letter. He's going, man, my friend, like I, I can picture the last time I saw you. You were in tears because we were parting. And my heart aches to see you again. I would be filled with such joy if I could just see my friend's face one more time. Verse five, I'm reminded of your sincere faith. He loved the genuineness of Timothy's heart. A faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. See, Paul's not only reflecting on his own legacy, he's now reminding Timothy of his. Remember where you came from. Remember who you are. Your grandmother prayed for you. Your mother poured her heart out for you. And now here you are faithfully walking with the Lord. For this reason, think about this, for very personal reasons, in light of Paul reflecting back on his life, in light of Paul's heart and love for Timothy, as a reminder of those who've gone before Timothy and poured into his life, that legacy that's been poured into him, in light of all that, Paul says, listen, buddy, here's the deal, man. For this reason, I want to remind you, fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has given us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. How familiar is that final verse seven to you guys? Y'all pretty familiar with that? God's not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and self-control. Now, I wanna do a brief little like off to the side thing here. I do think it's right and appropriate at times to grab a verse and hold that verse and pray that verse. Um, Jesus, believe it or not, actually took verses out of context sometimes. Several times during his ministry, he would grab a verse out of a passage and use it in a, in a different way. Now, he wasn't changing the heartbeat of scripture. I'm not, I don't wanna encourage that. It should line up with the fullness of God's word. But I do think we're called to, to pray this as a prayer. God, I don't wanna have a spirit of fear. And we prayed in a lot of different contexts. But Paul, very specifically, when he's writing this to Timothy, he's talking about Timothy stepping into the place God's called him to. He's saying, you have courage to be the man God has called you to be, to walk the road God has called you to walk. 
Every single one of us has a unique place and a unique purpose and a unique road to walk. No one else can do it. I'm not supposed to. There's a road I'm called to walk. And so Paul's saying, Timothy, don't be afraid of that road God's calling you to walk. Now listen, this is, this is like real. Nero is the one on the throne. He's slaying Christians all day long. Their leaders are dropping like flies. They're being imprisoned. They're being killed. For Timothy to step up and say, I'm going to publicly and passionately be a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ and, and pour my life out to share this with others, you got to know there was some fear involved in that. But Paul says, hey, buddy, be courageous. Remember the legacy. Remember, remember the love I have for you. Remember what's been poured into you and fan that flame. Every single one of us have been given a precious gift by the Lord. There are things inside of us that he's implanted there, things we care about, purposes he's given us, reasons why we're on this planet. We've all been given it. But what do we do with it? He gives it to us, but Paul encourages Timothy, fan it into flame, stoke that fire. Let some new life breathe on that thing so it roars to life. Fan that flame. So he's encouraging Timothy, man, walk your road, run your road, you can do it. He unpacks this a bit more a couple chapters later. We're gonna skip ahead here to, to 2 Timothy chapter three. And we're gonna look at four different verses. The first thing he encourages him to do in, in 2 Timothy 3, verses 14 and 15 is to learn and to endure. To learn and to endure. Check this out. 2 Timothy 3, verse 14. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Continue to have the heart and attitude of a learner and then endure with the things you've been taught. Don't just file them away like there's knowledge that's now inside of my head that I've got. Use it. Put it into practice. Treasure it. Hold on to it. I love the imagery he uses here. He's like, buddy, you've been given these beautiful, sacred, precious writings from early days. This, this should be an encouragement to all of us but this should especially be encouragement to those of us who've maybe grown up in the church, who've grown up in the faith, who've walked with the Lord from a young age. I can remember being, I don't know, 15, 16, and being in high school and then even moving into college years and almost feeling like my story was kind of lame. You know, like somebody would come visit youth group and they just have this unbelievable, powerful testimony about this crazy road they had walked and huge struggles they had had or or tough things that had happened to them and how the Lord had rescued them out of that. And I just remember being in awe of some of these people and their story. And then I'd kind of look at my life and go, well, I'm just kind of like the little Christian kid who honestly kind of gets bored with this sometimes. And my mind kind of just drifts when I'm at church and I don't, you know, don't take it that seriously. And there's nothing really radical that I've ever been saved from. And I almost kind of like despised my testimony. Paul's speaking the opposite here. He's like, Timothy, treasure what's been passed on to you. It's been hard earned. People have walked a hard, long road to pass that on to you. And one of the things the Lord began to show me, for example, is like the road my dad had walked. 
My father's got an incredible testimony. He's the oldest of five kids. When he was 12 years old, his only sister was about one. His mom disappeared. They didn't meet her again until my dad was in his 50s. She disappeared. He became like the mom of the family. He could have counted on one hand how many times he'd been in church his whole childhood. His dad was an over-the-road truck driver. And my dad living that life, walking the hard, rough road that he did, gets married to a little Catholic girl whose parents were not thrilled that she was marrying him, by the way. My grandparents love him now, but they were not thrilled. Um, They get married and she's kind of drifting from any sort of faith and they have six hard, rough years of marriage. They find themselves moving from Ohio to, to, um, not Tennessee, we're in Tennessee now, to Texas in the Houston area. And they're working at a teller at a bank. This lady would come in and begin to minister to my mom and led her into a real personal born again relationship with Jesus Christ. And then she began to pray for my dad faithfully for a while. And one day she's in the kitchen, I think like Pat Robertson or something's on TV. She's listening, he's reading his paper. My dad tells the story. He just kind of found himself for no reason. He hadn't been listening to the message at all. He heard the guy say, do you want to pray to receive Jesus? And he put his paper down and prayed with the TV evangelist. So I guess there is some use in TV evangelists. <laughs> Sorry, I've got a little bit of a thing about that. But listen, there, like, there's people doing that with good purpose and good intention in some cases. And so here's this guy. He, le- he gets led to the Lord through the TV screen. And because of that, because, because my dad walked that hard road and him and my mom purposed, we're going to learn what a real marriage looks like in Jesus. We know what it doesn't look like. So let's learn what it really looks like. And let's learn how to be parents, even though my dad had never truly been really fathered or mothered in a healthy way. That's my testimony. It's my parents. It's what they've done. And that has been passed on to me. It's been hard earned. And not only that, can you hand me my Bible real quick, babe? Not only that, this has endured. I get to read a letter from Paul. I'm holding the same thing Timothy held. Paul was in that prison cell. Instead of going, woe is me and this is miserable and how could God let me end up here? I mean, I was convicted. I was annoyed that it took me an hour to find a place that was two blocks away. And I'm like sweaty and hot and frustrated. And this is my last day in Rome and I'm wasting it, wandering around looking for this. I could have been, you know, sitting at a nice cafe for the last hour. And instead I had to do all this. And I walk into that cell. I get to hold that sacred writing where Paul pours out his heart and says, this is who Jesus is. And this is what he's done for you. And Timothy, this is what he's called to you. And now I get to read it as Jake. This is what he's called you to. I have that sacred writing. I get to hear from Paul's heart. Really, I'm hearing from the Lord's heart through Paul. That's our legacy. That's what we've been given. And so we're told to learn it and to endure in it, to hold on to it, to treasure it. The next couple verses go on to say in 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17, all scripture is breathed out by God. You want to know how you fan the flame that's within you? Let the Holy Spirit breathe the word of God into your heart and life, and that flame will roar. Jeremiah said it was like fire shut up in my bones. You want to watch God set you on fire? 
Open up with a real, honest heart and say, Spirit of the living God, will you come and make your word alive in my heart? And he'll do it. He'll do it. This word of God, is this scripture is breathed by God and it's profitable for teaching. I can learn things I didn't know before. I can open up this book and find something fresh and new and alive today. For reproof, I can be told when I'm a little bit off. For correction, for training in righteousness. I can be trained like an athlete. I can grow. That the man or woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Complete, made whole. You know, one of the versions of the word holiness is wholeness. Things are set right. They're, they're healthy, they're good. He says, Timothy, God wants to build you up into this complete, settled, confident, assured, equipped man. That's, that's what Paul had to say to Timothy. Note that learning, when it comes to this book, when it comes to God's word, it's not about knowing, it's about changing. It's about changing. When we learn from God, he changes us, he grows us. So that's the first thing he had to say to Timothy. Timothy, run your race, fan the flame. Let God's word come alive in your heart and see what happens. The second thing he encouraged Timothy to do was to pass the baton. One of the surprise things on the trip for me, um, I'm the kid that didn't really enjoy art class. If there was a field trip to a museum, it was just like, you know, you do the thing where like your bones go like jelly. It's like, I can't take one more step through this boring, like, where's the next bench that I can sit on and just wait till we go to the next room? Like, I just, I did not get into art class. I just didn't. And so part of going to Italy is like, we're gonna go see some museums. We're gonna look at some art. And I was, I was, I did get bored a few times. I'm gonna be honest. <laughs> but I was also blown away a few times. One of the things that was incredible um, we were in the, I never pronounce this right, Uffizi, the Uffizi Museum in Florence. And there were a lot of incredible things to see there, but there was a lot of Leonardo da Vinci's work there. And one of the paintings that we came across was this painting of the baptism of Jesus. And they began to teach us about this painting, and he didn't paint this painting on his own. He was still relatively young and was working with his mentor. His mentor's name was Andre del Verrocchio. He was Italian. And the two of them did this pain together. So I want to show you this. So first of all, here's the picture that Amy took. I'm pretty sure Amy, Amy, you took that, right? So that's the actual picture hanging on the wall there. Um, there's John on the right, John the Baptist on the right. There's Jesus. She probably told me what those angels were right there. I don't really remember. But anyway... Um, all right, go to the next picture. It's a little bit easier to see. It's a little bit of a blown up picture. So this painting was started by his mentor, his master. And this was a pretty common thing when there were apprentices learning how to paint. And so they would work on projects together. And so Verrocchio painted this. So he started, and what's interesting is Verrocchio painted starting on the right. And I, I know like you're kind of far away, may not be able to tell this really well, but he did John the Baptist. And as it began to move to the left, Da Vinci came in and he painted Jesus and the angels in the background on the left-hand side. Now, when you're looking at this thing in real life and you begin to hear that there were two different guys painting it, you start to look at it, you start to see the stark difference. 
There's way less detail, the use of light. It's super simplistic of what the original guy did. And this was a master that taught some incredible artists. And this young Leonardo da Vinci begins to paint on the left and it just takes over the whole picture and becomes a masterpiece. What's sad about this is when Leonardo da Vinci finished his part of the picture and his master saw it, he realized how much his pupil had exceeded him. He never painted again. He stopped. Isn't that sad? He's the one that poured into that guy. He's the one that mentored him, discipled him, taught him, helped him grow into this incredible master. Instead of getting to step back and go, dude, you nailed it. This is amazing. The pupil has surpassed the teacher and celebrating it and then moving to the next guy to begin training him. He's devastating. He never painted again because the student had surpassed him. What blew me away when I began to think about this painting is what it's a painting of and the stark difference between John the Baptist and Jesus versus Verrocchio and Da Vinci. The very thing he's painting is the passing of the torch. John the Baptist has Jesus come to him and John's like, bro, you should be baptizing me. This should be the other way around. And he baptizes Jesus and Jesus from that moment on steps into his ministry and he begins to baptize. And check this out in John chapter three. John chapter three, verse 25. This is right after Jesus' baptism. He's just beginning his ministry. And now John the Baptist's disciples, this discussion arises in John three twenty-five. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification, over baptism. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, that's Jesus, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him now. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. Verse 29, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. John understood what it meant to pass the baton and to leave a legacy. And not only did he celebrate that Jesus was stepping into who he had been called to be, but John continued. He continued to baptize. He continued to preach right up until his head was cut off. Right up until he ended up in the same place Paul eventually did. He didn't stop, but he also celebrated and recognized what Jesus was stepping into. You know, we read it from this side of history and we're like, well, of course, I mean, it's Jesus. He's the Messiah. But like, this was just his cousin. This was a kid that he, you know, kicked a ball around in the dirt with growing up. He was the older cousin, right? He probably was like beating Jesus at sports and stuff. I mean, that's what my older friends did to me when I was growing up. But like, seriously, like they were cousins. They'd rolled around in the dirt. These were real people. And, and many scholars believe, and I think I'm kind of in this camp, that John really didn't know who Jesus was until Jesus came walking that road to him to be baptized. Because John had been told, the one I show you will be the one. Think about that. His cousin is the Messiah, and he's celebrating it. John had crowds flocking to him before that. 
He celebrated. Paul emphasizes then to Timothy that he began to do the same thing. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Timothy, right now, start teaching other people how to teach. Begin to pass on what I've been giving you right now. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. It hurts. It hurts. Uh, there are people that I've spent years with in my life pouring into that moved away. I'm excited for them. That, that's a bummer. That hurts. Like when you've walked a road with people for a long time that you really love, and then you have a moment of separation, like there's pain along the way when you pour into other people's lives. People move. People stumble and drift. Things happen. Life changes. It's going to hurt. But he says, keep enduring. Keep going and pass this stuff on. Now think about this. Timothy is entering his prime as a leader. He's not telling Timothy at 60 years old, it's time for you to start passing this on to other people. He said, hey, buddy, you're just now stepping into being a pastor. It's time to start giving it away. There is something that needs to change in our way of thinking when it comes to legacy. What's the, there's like a phrase that we kind of use. We'll say leaving a legacy, right? It's something at the end of our life that we leave to somebody else. That's not what we're called to. We're called to live a legacy. Every step of the way, we should be pouring into other people. And there are unique people that have been placed in your life to pour into that nobody else can, at least not in the way that you can. And so there are people right now in our lives, as we're fanning our own flame and stepping into what God's called us to, to run our race, we're not going to just get wrapped up in our own lives and then later stop and go, hmm, now that I'm reflecting back at the end of my life, what kind of legacy do I want to leave? You've already left it. You left it. Every step you were taking, you were already leaving a legacy. See, one of the things that, that we have to be willing to let happen in our hearts is let the truth of what God says um, confront our cultural norms. And one of the things that is so normal in our American culture is to build my own life. To, to pick myself up by my bootstraps and live the life I want to live. Now, there's nothing wrong with pursuing our dreams and doing the things God's called us to. But we are meant to do that in light of the bigger picture. Remember how Paul started? Remember your grandmother. Remember your mother. Now, he's saying, you pass it on to other people. While we are living the life God's called us to live, we are to be about others. Not so wrapped up in ourself and our own journey and what we're doing that we miss the boat. We're called to live a legacy. Continuing on this theme, Paul writes, skipping down to verse 8, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect. He endures the hardships for the sake of others, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Now, he's writing about God's word not being bound. I mentioned this just a minute ago. I've got a hold of God's word because Paul wrote it in that prison cell. He passed it on to the elect. I'm one of them now. 
I'm one of the people that he influenced because he stopped and he wrote this. But Paul lived this. He was with Barnabas. He was with Silas. He was with Timothy. Like on and on and on. Everywhere you see Paul going, he's got somebody with him. As he went, he kept somebody with him and was passing on what he was learning. Here's the other thing that Paul realizes. It's not just this person right here. God's word, the truth of who God is, it endures. It was kind of amazing to me to sit um, in Rome and go to the Colosseum first and then go to this prison. When Paul was in that prison cell, it was about five years before they broke ground on the Colosseum. The Colosseum was built on the ruins of Nero's um, palace. And it was meant to kind of um, galvanize the Roman people back together after some stuff that happened when Nero was no longer Caesar. They had like a quick turnaround of like three or four Caesars. And so, um, and so they, the Colosseum wasn't built while Paul was in that little prison cell, that tiny little cell. Now here I am 2,000 years later and I'm looking at the Colosseum way past its glory days. And it's still there, but it's in rough shape. Has anybody else traveled to Rome and seen it? It's in rough shape. There's all these holes where like precious metal and jewels and stuff had been. And as Rome was decaying, the, the people began to just rip out that treasure out of the Colosseum to like repurpose it, sell it, use it. Not only that, this huge, amazing, glorious Colosseum, there was an earthquake in the 14th century and half of the outer wall completely collapsed. So when you see it now, it's literally like in ruins. And then you can walk two blocks down the road and still see this tiny little cell where Paul wrote something that has impacted and endured 2,000 years later. God's word stands forever. It changes lives. And you know what passes on? People. My legacy can be building up my Colosseum or it can be investing in the lives of others. And that's what will endure generation to generation to generation, grandparent to parent to child, and on down the line. Live a legacy, don't leave a legacy. Last thing, number three. Y'all with me? Y'all doing good? Last thing. As Paul was wrapping all this up, we get, to, we get to the end of 2 Timothy, and he's kind of in chapter four now, and just writing like his final buildup, his final paragraph. And Paul could write some sentences that were paragraphs. But he's, he's writing this, and in 2 Timothy 4, starting in verse 1, this is, this is like the last thing he's saying to Timothy. And this is, he's like challenging him. This is like man-to-man type stuff. Guys, any of y'all that did any sports, this is like the locker room talk, like get fired up before the big game type talk. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom. So he's like, buddy, like, as God is my witness is what he's saying. Like, buck up, buddy, here we go. As God is my witness, and in light of his kingdom and his purposes and his presence, here's what you're to do. Preach the word. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove. Rebuke. Man, that's super popular right now. Reproving and rebuking people. <laughs> Exhort with complete patience and teaching. See, even the people that are like, no, I actually like the rebuking part. Yeah, you're supposed to do it with patience. Teaching. 
For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears, and they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. This is happening all around us all the time. And will turn away from listening to the truth, and they will wander off into myths. This is people who at first believe the truth and slowly but surely begin to drift into believing things that aren't right. And they drift off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I told y'all earlier, he knew what awaited him. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. I cannot wait to see Jesus. Paul tells him to preach for four reasons. He says, preach in any season. Every single situation calls for some truth to be spoken. Every circumstance of life, every difficulty, every person we encounter is in need. And there are opportunities to speak life and hope and truth, to correct or to exhort and encourage, to be patient. Even with our enemies, 2 Timothy chapter 2, he talks about that specifically. Verses 23 through 26. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. I mean, all the stupid stuff that we as Christians spend our time arguing and fighting over. This world needs Jesus. It needs Jesus to forgive us. We need Jesus to cleanse us. We need Jesus to heal us. And we need his grace so we can live in this difficult troubled generation. You know that they breed quarrels and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome but kind to the people that are nice to you, the ones you agree with, everyone. Able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. They may not, but gently correcting them will give an opportunity. And so that's why we preach. We preach in every single season for whatever the season calls in order for, for people to be won back, to be restored, because their itching ears are getting scratched by a lot of other voices. Not only that, he tells them to preach because gravity. Everything does this. Remember he says, people, we begin to hear myths. They'll begin to follow legends. They started out here, but they'll drift. This is the natural course of things. This happens in my own life. Unattended, I do that. And it's actually kind of scary sometimes how fast that can happen. <laughs> that's, the, that's the tendency. Gravity sets in. And so a force greater than it has to hit up against it to keep going. And he says, that's what the word of God will do. Preach God's word because of gravity. Preach it because only you can fulfill your ministry. He said, do it. You fulfill your ministry. Do the work. And then finally, preach to the end. Endure all the way right up until the end. 
I want to close with one last thing. It would be really easy to stop right there because he finishes it with this idea of running the race and completing it, and it kind of feels like it comes to a close, and then he says a bunch of personal things. But in the midst of him saying some personal things, he gives us some insight into the reality of what walking this road means. As we run our race and we pass the baton and we preach the word, we're going to encounter this kind of stuff. 2 Timothy 4, verses 16 through 18. He's talking about when he began to stand trial. And he said, at my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. Y'all, he's not just using allegorical speech. Nero is throwing people to the lions. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. Paul understood the eternal purposes and knew ultimately he would be safely kept into God's heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. If we walk this road, we will suffer personal rejection. We will have the people closest to us let us down. It's going to happen. Paul's closest friends let him down. Jesus' closest friends let him down. They all disappeared on the night he was betrayed. It's going to happen. But Jesus and Paul both said the same thing. Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Paul says, don't hold it against them. He understood the importance that as we get older and wiser and we walk that hard road and we pour out our lives, that it would be easy to get frustrated and hurt and bitter and disappointed and get jaded. And his, his um, advice isn't, don't be friends with people. His advice isn't, go be a monk, cut yourself off. He says, no, keep at it. Keep investing, keep loving, keep sharing. You'll be hurt, you'll be disappointed, it'll be difficult, but you can do it. Endure, endure, and he will see us safely home. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I'm in awe of your incredible love for us. God, I'm in awe of the way you have sustained your saints over the generations that a man writing a letter in a hole in the ground, that that could endure far beyond all the glory of the Roman Empire, that we can be sitting here today holding your word that is alive and active and powerful. God, that will fan the flame in our hearts, that will stoke it into a huge fire. God, my prayer is that we would be the kind of people who would run our race who would, while we're running, live a life that's leaving a legacy every step of the way. And God, that we would hold firm to your word. We would believe it and we would speak it and we'd do it in the right way. God, we would correct and encourage and that we'd always do it with gentleness and patience. God, we love you. We need you. Help us to endure to the end. And Jesus, we cannot wait to see you at your appearing. It's in your name we pray. Amen.